I greet you today in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. The title of my message today is Walking with the Wise Men. And therefore, we've got to go to the only book in the Bible that mentions the wise men. That is the Gospel of Matthew from the second chapter, verses 1 through 12. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests, And teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. And found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. So that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts. And set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, in all probability, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be attending some Christmas parties. And so I want to pass on to you what would be a good trivia question, Christmas-related, that if you get an opportunity, you might spring on some folks. Here's the question. How many wise men came to visit Jesus in Bethlehem? Now, you may be thinking, I know, Brother Bill, it's three. Well, that's not true, or at least The Bible does not say that. We know there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but that doesn't mean there were three wise men. 
Frankly, the Bible does not say how many wise men came. Could have been three, could have been ten. We don't know. We don't know. The Bible does not say. Now, this morning, I do want us to approach the Bethlehem miracle through the eyes of the wise men. They were really the only true dignitaries that came to visit Jesus at the time of his birth. They were descendants of a powerful Middle Eastern tribe that for several centuries uh, ruled the governments of several Middle Eastern countries. And then at a certain point, they were ousted from government and became a tribe of theologians, priests, astrologers. And indeed, the word magi means astrologer. Contrary to tradition, the wise men probably did not visit Jesus at the manger as the shepherds did. Uh, Verse 11 in our text for today tells us that they visited the Holy Family in a house. And so the experts believe that in all probability the wise men visited Jesus when he was maybe a couple of weeks old. And by that time, Joseph had already had an opportunity to get the Holy Family out of that stable and into a rented room somewhere in Bethlehem. It is a safe assumption that the wise men were Arabs. Now, why is that significant? Because one of the most ancient enmities in the world is between Jews and Arabs. One writer has said that is the oldest, the world's oldest hatred between Jews and Arabs. And yet, those Arabian wise men worshipped the Jewish Prince of Peace. Now that's meaningful. Could this suggest that even today, Jesus is the key to reconciliation in the Middle East between Jews and Arabs. Let's pray that more and more Israelis and Palestinians will be claimed by Christ, will come to believe in Him as their Savior and Lord, and then, then they might find a genuine source of unity. Let me point out three characteristics of those ancient wise men that we would do well to imitate. First, they were expectant. They were expectant. They really did believe that God was about to do something of vital significance in their world. And indeed, even the pagan historians of that day, people like Suetonius and Tacitus, had written the same thing. One of them wrote this, and I quote, There has spread over all the Orient an established belief that at this very time, The east was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea would acquire universal empire. End of quote. They expected something vitally important to happen about the time of Jesus' birth. How expectant are you? How expectant am I as we approach the Christmas of 2022? I mean... Do we approach it as just a a ho-hum rerun of Christmas's past? Or are we really expecting and praying that God is going to do something unique this year in us, in our family, in our world? My favorite 
example of expectancy was a cute little 85-year-old, lively little lady who was in a Methodist retirement home. And one day a new resident came. He was a 90-year-old gentleman, ramrod straight, distinguished-looking, three-piece suit. And the little lady welcomed him to the home, and then she looked him over and said, My goodness, you look a lot like my fourth husband. He said, Madam, how many times have you been married? She winked and said, Three times so far. Don't you just love... <laughs> Don't you just love that kind of expectancy, especially in an 85-year-old? How expectant are we this Christmas? Uh, today, the area where Jesus was born really rivals Ukraine as one of the most volatile, dangerous places on earth. Are we praying and expecting that God could do something there so significant that it could be a turning point. We experience one such turning point with the Abraham Accords. Are we praying and expecting that God may take that region in a new step toward peace with justice? Today, the sovereign nation of Ukraine is, is trying to repel a Russian invasion. And if freedom can survive... In Ukraine, it'll send a message. It'll send a message, a hopeful message to other captive uh, peoples, uh, downtrodden people, that they too might become free. And it will send a message also to would-be aggressors that aggression does not pay dividends. Are we praying and expecting that God might help freedom survive in Ukraine? In almost every family represented here today, there's at least one strained or troubled relationship. They differ in kind, of course, but almost every family has at least one. Are we praying and expecting that during this Christmas season, God might reconcile the alienated and heal some fractured relationship? Every person here today can name at least one other person, if he or she thinks about it, uh, who does not know Jesus Christ in a personal way. Maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a friend, acquaintance, neighbor. Are we praying and expecting that God might in some miraculous way touch that person and call him and change his or her heart? And capture that person for Christ. And are we inviting God to use us as a bridge to that person? One of my favorite Bible verses is in the very last book, the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, I am making everything new. Are we expecting God to do some glorious new thing this Christmas? You know, nothing is too difficult for God. Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. So let's imitate the wise men and be expectant this Christmas. And then there's a second thing about the wise men that I want us to imitate. When they saw the baby Jesus, they worshiped him joyfully. In fact, as soon as they saw the star leading them to the Christ child, the Bible says they were overjoyed. 
I wonder, I wonder how much joy people can see in us this Christmas. I'm not talking about some kind of silly giddiness. I'm talking about the deep abiding joy in Christ that people could see in us that, that remains in highs or lows through difficulties and joyous times. If someone cannot see the joy of Christ in us, our witness just falls flat. If we don't demonstrate joy, people don't want much we've got. Uh, the late Bishop Ernest Fitzgerald, who was a personal friend of mine, used to tell a story about a train that stopped in some little town down in southern Georgia and uh, to, to take on some water for the engine. And uh, the engineer saw an old-timer uh, on the platform of the depot leaning up against the platform, and he shouted out a question to him. He shouted out, he said, Hey, brother, anybody around here enjoys religion? And the old-timer shouted back, them that has it does. Well, that may not be good grammar, but he was spot on in terms of theology. Them that has it does. You know, we Americans have come through an, an acrimonious, divisive election season. And frankly, we are as divided on the other side of it as we were before. And there is a real shortage of joy in the land. Do you suppose that part of our mission as Christians this Christmas is to spread some joy where there's such an enormous deficit? I think that could be part of our task. Now, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness can come from most anything, superficial, anything. In fact, the word happiness comes from a root word, H-A-P, which means chance. So happiness can be just a chance happening, chance event. Uh, happiness can be caused by all kinds of things. It can be caused by a football win by Clemson or Carolina. One or the other. Not both. Because, see, if both win, our happiness level is decreased somewhat. Happiness can be caused by the boss announcing a surprise end-of-year bonus. And, yes, the person who wins the Powerball payoff seems happy at first, but research shows the happiness doesn't last. But joy is different. Joy is deeper and more lasting it is peace in the face of tragedy even. Horatio Stafford lost his family in a tragic shipwreck. And even as he was surrounded by the grief of that awful tragedy, the joy of, in Christ remained so much so he was able to write a beloved hymn entitled, It Is Well With My Soul. The joy of Christ enabled St. Paul to declare, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Joy is the assurance that I am secure for all eternity in Christ and nothing can separate me from His love. Joy is the power and peace that the Holy Spirit gives one day at a time. One day at a time. And we don't produce joy. We aren't capable of it. Joy is a gift of God. Earlier, 
this morning between services, I visited the joy class. And I'll tell you, I don't know of a more joyful people in this world than the members of the joy class. And they illustrated exactly what I'm talking about. The Christian writer Leonard Small declares that joy is the flag that flies on the battlements of the heart when the king is in residence. That's what brings the joy. The king of kings is in residence. St. Paul gave us this command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And sometimes over the years, when I've been preaching to some somber looking congregations, now very different from you folks, very different. But believe it or not, they're out there, these somber looking congregations. And I've been tempted to say to them, if you've got any joy in your hearts, please notify your faces. But the love of Christ has constrained me not to say it. If we want our joy to grow, we got to share it. Uh, when the late great pastor Lloyd Ogilvie uh, would encounter Christians who seemed to be at least a quart low on joy, he would ask them this question. When was the last time you helped someone meet Christ? Because he knew that when we share Christ with others, we receive a new supply of it ourselves, of joy. The Christian evangelist Tony Campalo uh, found himself one day in the elevator of a New York skyscraper with about 20 or 25 other very serious-looking business people. And Tony is about the boldest character I've ever encountered. And Tony turned to them and said, Look, folks, we're going to be on this elevator for quite a while, and so let's sing together. And he launched into a boisterous version of You Are My Sunshine. And those business people were embarrassed, but they sang along. Tony got out on the 70th floor and uh, started walking down the hall. He noticed a man following him with a big smile on his face. And Tony said, are you going to the same meeting I am? man said, no, I just want to finish the song. <laughs> when we feel the joy of the Lord, we, we often want to sing. And here is the third characteristic of the wise men that I want us to imitate. They were givers. Yes, givers, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And at first glance, we think, what kind of strange gifts are those to give to a baby? Was this just another dismal example of, of letting men do the Christmas shopping? Uh, the newspaper columnist Dave Barry has written that Men and women are drastically different when it comes to buying gifts for Christmas. Uh, he says that by December 15, most women have already purchased between 20 and 25 gifts for family, friends, acquaintances. They've even purchased a couple of gifts for unknown people who might give them presents and need something from us to reciprocate. Uh, but men are different. Uh, the average man, says Barry, on December, by December 15, has purchased zero, zero presents. And um, uh, the standard husband uh, has not yet purchased a gift for his wife. Now, last year he purchased her a gift. But he could tell by her reaction she had not been dreaming of an auto-emergency kit. 
though it was a deluxe version with booster cables. He knew he had committed some wrong, but he didn't know what, and she was too kind to tell him. So this year, he's resolved he's going to do better. He's going to do better. Uh, he's already determined, I won't buy her anything automotive, nothing. He's thinking about a weed eater. <laughs> the gifts given by the wise men were not examples of men messing up. In Christmas shopping. God prompted those three selections. The first gold was the gift of kings. And it was appropriate for Jesus. The king of kings. And the lord of lords. Uh, in the first century gold was sort of like a visa card. It was recognized and honored and valued everywhere. Frankincense. The second gift was. The gift of a deity or divine being. And certainly Jesus qualified. And then myrrh, the third gift, was an aromatic substance often used to anoint the dead. And so why in the world do you give that to a baby? Because Jesus was the only person in history born for the purpose of dying. Offering his perfect life as a sacrifice for our sin. The wise men did not bring a bag full of gifts. Just a few well-chosen gifts inspired by God. Some of the best gifts today require something other than money. They require things like energy and time and sensitivity. Let me suggest a few of the gifts that could be precious this Christmas. Invite someone who lives alone to share a meal at your house. Forgive someone so that a grudge is banished. Send a thank you note or an email to a former coach or teacher. Pray for the political leader you most despise. Now there's a hard one. Visit someone in a nursing home. Spend a couple of hours ringing a bell for the Salvation Army. Contact a shut-in and offer to transport him or her to a Christmas Eve service. And if you know somebody who's caring for an Alzheimer patient, volunteer to spend an afternoon with the patient so that the caregiver uh, can uh, have an afternoon off. Write a note to someone on military duty far from home this Christmas. So, on this third Sunday of Advent, I'm calling us to imitate the wise men. Like them, let's be expectant. Like them, let's worship Christ joyfully. And like them, let us be wise and careful givers. Let me close with a true story about one of America's great pastors in the 19th century, Phillips Brooks of Boston. Phillips Brooks went through a period in his ministry when he felt barren spiritually. He just felt dry. He needed to be re recharged by the Lord. And so he got a leave of absence from his church and he traveled to the Holy Land. And he roamed over those hills around Bethlehem where the angels had announced to the shepherds the birth of the Savior. 
And he knelt in that little dark cavern, that little small cavern that today is underneath a huge church where legend has it Jesus was born. And somewhere in the middle of his searching, Christ found Phillips Brooks anew and filled him with joy and so inspired him that he wrote the words of a carol that we have been singing ever since. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Phillips Brooks and the wise men found Christ in the Holy Land. For us, the Holy Land can be wherever we are. Christ is in us and among us if we just search for Him. I'm challenging us today to approach Christmas with expectancy, with joy, and with giving hearts like any wise person should. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Come into our hearts. Come into our hearts, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into our hearts. Lord Jesus, amen.